So our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We were in there last week. We're going to narrow down this week. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, all the way through 11. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, but because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is the reading of God's Word. Have you ever been uh, given something that you did not earn? Gifted something that not just that you didn't earn, but really didn't deserve. I think all of us at Christmas time feel like we deserve presents. So that's not really what I mean. I mean, someone gives you something out of the blue. And they do it just because they love you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But they gave it to you. Have you ever been given a gift like that? When I was about 11, I woke up one morning, the school morning, in a complete panic. Complete panic. Why? Because there was a project due that day that I had not started. And so I wake up, run downstairs, sheepishly go up to my dad and say, Hey, uh, hey, Dad, do you think you could do something for me? Like, sure, what? Could you draw something for me? I need a drawing for school, and I'm a terrible artist, and you are great. He said, sure. I can draw something. Can I draw anything? I said, yeah, it doesn't matter. He says, okay, fine. Give me your shoe. So I take my shoe off and I hand him my shoe and he puts it in front of him. He starts working. And I don't understand people who can draw. People who can just look at things and recreate them on paper does not make any sense to me. And in 15 minutes, he's created this nearly flawless rendition of my old grubby shoe. I grab it, say thanks, run off to school and happily turn it in with my name on it. Crisis averted until the next project I put off. So a few, a few weeks later, my teacher says, hey, Ryan, can you, can you come up here? Okay. Walk up. And he says, Ryan, do you remember that, that drawing that you did of, of that shoe? He's like, yeah, I remember that. He says, you know, it was so good that I decided to enter it into a local art competition. What? What did you do? Panic. Of course, I didn't say anything. I didn't confess. I was 11. Go home and tell my dad, though, and he bursts out laughing. And so we all jump in the car and we drive down to this art show, this art exhibit, whatever. And we go, and there, sure enough, there it is, prominently displayed. And it had won an award, I think second place. And there was my name beneath it. Okay, that's my confession to you this morning. I, I did not earn that. I did not deserve that. Now that sort of gift is a little dubious because I kind of lied my way in to getting it. But when we do get things that people 
that we don't deserve and that we don't earn and people just give it to us, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing and it can completely alter, change your life. Let me tell you another story. In 2009, during the commencement ceremonies at Azusa Pacific University, the president of the school, his name was John Wallace, he brought out some students to the stage, three different students. These students had given their lives to God and they wanted to serve him abroad and they were all going to India to serve the poorest of the poor. Now, the students thought they were just going out to be commissioned, to be prayed for, to be sent off with their blessing. But then something happened that they had not prepared for. John announced that an anonymous person had donated money in each of their names. Someone anonymous. Money to them. John turned to the first student and he said, You are forgiven of your debt of $105,000. The student bursts into tears. John turns to the next student. You are forgiven of your debt of $70,000. He turns to the third student. You are forgiven of your debt of $130,000. The students had no idea this was coming. As one writer put it, they were ambushed by grace. Blown away that someone would, that they don't even know would pay for their debt. And the whole room was in tears. Rather than carrying the burden of this debt into the mission field, these three students were freed and energized. The simple act of grace likely changed their lives forever. And that hits our hearts, of course. That's amazing. We see that sometimes in modern culture where people are given things that they don't deserve. But we can be cynical about it, right? We can say, well, that's great. That's, that's nice for them. But those sorts of things don't happen very often. You can't count on some anonymous person just paying for your school debt or for something else. You can't count on this sort of grace from other people. And we have to say to that, that's true. That is right. We can't. We must depend and count on something far greater. We must bank our lives on something that to our ears sounds too good to be true. But when we do, when we receive it, when we receive that gift we do not earn or deserve, that is when we truly live. When we freely receive what we should not have, we will fly in this life. Two points this morning. All of grace for all of life. Those are the two points. One, all of grace. All of grace. 1 Corinthians 15.8. What does it say? Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's stop there. So Paul, if you remember from last week, he's proving the resurrection. That's what he does at the beginning. He wants to prove the gospel and to prove the gospel. He has to, he has to prove that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so he talks about all these people who saw Jesus alive after he had died. Peter, James, the rest of the disciples, the 500 other people. But he says, I was the last. 
He ends with himself. And I can kind of picture it in my mind as he's writing this down. That his emotions are welling up within him as he's speaking of the gospel and the historical reality that Jesus truly was raised from the dead. And he knows that he is going to end with himself. He is full. He is happy. Friends, Jesus appeared to me too. He should not have. But he did, and he saved me, and he gave me a position I did not earn, nor could I have earned it. I did not deserve it. I am a blood-bought sinner and apostle entirely by his grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Grace. Bono likes that word. Bono of you too. He loves that word. Grace is my favorite word in the lexicon of the English language, he says. And then he says something perfect. He says, it's a word I'm depending on. That's perfect. He's depending on this word grace. And really, he's just repeating Paul. Paul had based his life on this idea of grace. Paul, Bono, depending on grace. Are you depending on grace? Do you say with your life, but by the grace of God, I am what I am? And we have to ask the question, what is grace? What is grace? Grace is the undeserved and unmerited kindness of God to us. Grace is the undeserved and unmerited blessing and gifts of God for us. Let's say it more simply. We do not deserve, we cannot earn God's kindness. And yet he gives it to us. All of it. Paul says in Romans 5, but God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are sinners. Christ gave us everything. He gave us the atoning death of Jesus. He gave us our justification and adoption. And for Paul, this was his life. This was the gospel. His life truly at the bottom, at the foundation, was all of grace. Is that true for you? And that sounds good. We like like grace. We like the idea of grace that we would be given things that we really don't deserve to have. But I think that if we start to peel back the layers of grace, we may not like it so much. And I know this because I hear it often when people come up to this idea when they truly understand what grace is. They're not so sure about it. Because grace is radical. It is radical. The first thing we understand is that if grace is to be grace, it must be available for everyone. If grace is truly grace, it must be available to everyone. God's grace must be available to every person if if it is to be grace. Now, you might say, that's not too crazy. But then you have to think, wait a minute, who does everyone really include? Is that just a, a saying, everyone? Do you actually mean everyone? Because if you mean everyone, then, then you mean criminals. You mean the worst of the worst people on death row, dictators. Is God's grace for them? And what is Paul's answer? It's not just yes, it is. That is my story. 
I was the worst of the worst when grace came to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Listen to it again. It's really fascinating. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So we know what that means. Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road, on the Damascus road physically. It wasn't just a vision. He saw him. Okay, so he sees Jesus, but did you hear that phrase in the middle? As to one untimely born. What does that mean? What does it mean to be untimely born? Well, in the Greek, when you read the Greek word, it's a phrase. It's a hard word. It probably means something like stillborn or even abortion. What commentators think is that Paul is repeating something that people were saying about him. People had been calling him a name. They'd been saying, you are an abortion. You are a freak. You are unworthy of this life. This is so important. How does Paul respond? He says, darn right. I am a freak. But even worse than you know, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul did not just speak funny or look funny. He was not just a weird guy. He was the worst of the worst. And he does not deny it. He does not get angry at them and defend himself. No, that title is worth repeating. Yes, because it proves the radical nature of God's grace. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul went from terrorist to apostle, from seeking to destroy the church to giving his life for it, from an enemy of God to glad servant. And it was entirely by God's grace. He did not earn it. He certainly did not deserve it. Paul's life just shows just how far grace goes. It goes all the way. It is available to everyone. I remember in the weeks after 9-11, sitting uh, in, in my church and listening to my pastor talk about what had happened. And then he talked about Osama bin Laden. At that point, they knew that he was behind it, behind the attacks. <laughs> and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I probably should have, but I couldn't believe that my pastor said, and you know what, friends? We need to pray for Osama bin Laden. We need to hope that he would become another Paul. I didn't like it bad at the time. But now that I know, now that I understand grace, that is true. If grace is truly grace, it is available to everyone. But it's not just available. It's not just available to everyone. It is necessary. It is necessary for everyone. That means it includes you. When people encounter the gospel of free grace for the first time, they often say this to me. They say, listen, I can believe that Jesus died for most people and even me. I can believe that he died for me to go to heaven, but I cannot believe that he died for the worst of the worst. I can't believe that he would let people on death row say they trust in him and, and then go to heaven. Does not sit well with me. And I get that. I have even thought that. 
Well, my pastor said that about Osama bin Laden. I said, no way. But there is a huge problem with it. When you do this, when you say that grace is not available for everyone, that it is not necessary for everyone, you're saying something like, well, you need to be sort of good to get God's grace. If there is a bad enough to not get in, then that means that there is a good enough to get in. Now, there's two problems with this. The first is that when you ever add anything to grace, if you add any stipulations, any goodness or badness, you cancel it out. Grace, by definition, is undeserved and unearned, and so by changing it, you destroy it. But here's the other thing. Here's the other problem with that challenge. We are not as good as we think we are. We are not as good as we like to think we are. We need grace too, but not just a little. We need the same grace as the worst sinner. Let me say it clearly. Our sin, no matter how small or how great, has condemned us and we need grace. Maybe you've heard this from Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have sinned against a perfectly holy, just God. Not just some people. Not just a few people in another country. No, every person on the planet, everyone who has ever lived except for Jesus has sinned. Now, we have not all sinned in the same way. It's not what I'm saying. We have not all sinned to the same degree. Yes, on earth, there are people who are worse than us. They're worse than you. You are not as bad a sinner as someone on death row. That is absolutely true. But the point of grace is this. That doesn't matter. It does not matter how much less you sin than others. And that is because our sin is not measured against other people. Our sin is measured against the Lord of hosts. All have fallen short of people, of your brother-in-law, of the President of the United States. No, of God himself. Because of who God is, because he is infinitely holy, even the smallest sin against him condemns us. That is the underlying truth of grace. The smallest sin against an infinitely holy God earns us hell. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We have not earned our salvation. What we have earned is death. How can I explain it? I don't know. I don't know how, a good way. I thought all week about it, so I'm going I'm to give it a shot. Say you are in New York City and you go to the Modern Museum of Art there. And you approach... Maybe one of the most famous paintings in the world, maybe like number two to Mona Lisa, Starry Night by Van Gogh. It's there. Now, just in my little story, it's open, it's free, it's not behind any glass. And you walk up and, and from the very beginning, everything is telling you, do not approach this painting. All the signs, all the museum staff are telling you a simple law. Do not get close Admire it, but don't get close. And good Lord, do not touch it. Do not touch it. But you're curious. And you don't like instructions and laws. And you walk right up to that invaluable painting. No one else is in the room. 
and you get close and you see its beauty. It doesn't, it's not just beautiful from afar, it is beautiful up close. And you can see the oils, they are so thick and they look like they were painted yesterday. You can even see Van Gogh's fingerprints in the paint where he swiped with his fingers. And you are just overcome and you can't help yourself. And you reach out to touch it. Just inside one of the creases. It's the harm in that. When you take your finger away and you see something that was not there before, a black smudge. And you look down at your finger and you didn't notice it before, but you had ink on your finger just a little bit. And you transferred it to that painting. Horrified, you'd try to clean it off. You try to clean the painting off as best you can, but this just makes it worse. It spreads the ink. You're rubbing so hard that a piece of the painting, that fragile, old, beautiful, invaluable painting, breaks off and falls to the ground, and you stop, and you can't breathe, and your heart is beating out of your chest, and you get dizzy, and someone behind you, behind you screams, what have you done? Is that a huge sin? You didn't murder anyone. You didn't steal the painting. This wasn't premeditated. You were just curious. You only made the tiny mistake of ignoring those laws. But I think you know this does not change the reality. You destroyed it. This precious, great, priceless, and irreplaceable work of art ruined. And in just a few seconds. How much is the painting worth, you ask the authorities? A hundred million dollars. Your small sin against an irreplaceable painting and you are on the hook for something you can never repay. How much worse is our sin against an infinitely holy God. We have rejected him, denied him, chosen lesser gods over him. We have spit on him and we are condemned. Now here's the irony. We say that we just do small sins, but in reality, our small sins come from a darker place in our heart. And the only reason that we do not become the worst of the worst is because of God's grace. Romans 3 again. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Grace is available for everyone. It is available to everyone. But grace is necessary for everyone. And here's the last thing. Here's the thing that is probably the most radical. The love of God is revealed in grace. If you think about it, grace should not exist. Grace should not exist in this world. In large measure, it really doesn't. And you probably know that. We are not the most gracious people. We, humans are not really that Gracious. We don't exist. We don't try to show grace to each other. 
It is a dog-eat-dog world. you got to earn what you get, right? You must deserve what you get. I can sense myself doing that with my kids, teaching them, don't be gracious. You have to fight for what you have. How is God different? How can God be different? The answer is because he is loving. He is loving at his core. He can offer all of his riches at his son's expense because he is love. That is the most radical part of grace. And we think we need to understand it. And I was really trying to understand it. And this is the way I figured it out this week. So I was reading this week interviews with parents of men and women who had committed mass shootings. Not easy reading. I cannot imagine what these parents have endured and will endure until the day they die. Their their children did unspeakable things. And so they feel guilt, shame, anger, regret, deep sadness. You can feel it coming out over the pages. But they also still feel this. Love. They still feel love. These parents never stop loving their children. One man said of his son who shot up a school, killing two and injuring 13 more, he said, I've never stopped loving him. He is my son. He's made a terrible mistake, which he will be paying for for the rest of his life. But that does not make me stop loving him. And I read that and I have to ask myself, would I be any different If my child did these things, would I feel differently? I would hate it. I would hate what had overtaken them. But would I stop loving them? And that's when it occurred to me. What if I could give them grace? What if I could do it? What if I could give them not just normal grace, but divine cosmic grace? A grace that could transform them. What if I could reverse the sin that had taken hold of their heart? What if I could make it as though they had never committed the the horrible act in the first place? What if I could set them free, not just physically, but spiritually, not just legally, but eternally? Would I do it in a heartbeat? I would give them what they could not earn and did not deserve because I love them. But I could not do that. These parents cannot do that. And it's because they don't have any way to pay. They don't have any way to pay for this sort of grace. This grace, it's not really free. It's freely offered to us, but it is freely offered to us only because the cost was transferred to God himself. Only God can pay for this sort of grace, and he did. And you know what the payment was. The blood of his son. The radical grace of God reveals the radical love of God. Though we were stained and broken beyond recognition, though we deserve hell and damnation, he gave us his one and only son, and he will transform us. He will transform us. In his eyes for all of eternity, we will be the redeemed. No matter what we have done, no matter what we do, we are free and good in Jesus Christ. The cost of redemption cannot be overstated 
Randy Alcorn writes, the wonders of grace cannot be overemphasized. Christ took hell he didn't deserve so that we could have the heaven we don't deserve. I didn't say that well. Let me say it again. Christ took the hell he didn't deserve so we could have the heaven we don't deserve. Are you amazed at the grace of God? Are you amazed by it? Are you overjoyed at it? We live entirely by His grace. All of grace. That's just the first half. All of grace. What does all of life mean? We're going to do this a little bit faster. The reason we say all of grace for all of life is because now we are learning to live in light of it. Grace is not just a front door. It is the ground on which we walk. It is the air that we breathe. And so in this church, if you are a believer, your whole aim is to try to live out this grace. All of grace for all of life. The grace of God, I'm just going to give you three ways it changes us. It brings us humility. It brings us humility. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So what is, what's happening? Paul is saying that some people are coming to, them and, coming to him and saying, you're not working hard. You're not working hard for the gospel. And he says, no, I am. If you really knew what I was doing, you would know I was working hard, harder than any of them. But then he quickly follows it up. But it was not I. It was the grace of God that is within me. Paul didn't walk through the front door of Christianity. He didn't bust the doors down and say, okay, thanks for letting me in. Now let me show you what I can do. Let me show you, God. You can take a step back. You're going to see me do my thing. No, Paul lives in a sandwich of grace. He comes in by grace. And he lives by grace. He lives by grace. His successes, his wins, the grace of God. All the things that he did by the grace of God. Do you live by the grace of God? Do you do your job, your parenting, your ministry by God's grace? We are so used to doing things in our own strength. We must be humbled by this. All of grace for all of life. I love how Lewis Castle says it. He says, if God wants you to do something... He'll make it possible for you to do it. But the grace he provides comes only with the task and cannot be stockpiled beforehand. We are dependent on him from hour to hour. Grace humbles us because everything that we do is dependent on him. We can never boast in our works. He is our life. He is our grace. But this is good news because this means, friends, that we can rest. We can rest. We can rest in God's grace. And grace undercuts, it blows apart what is perhaps the biggest issue in our culture today, in American culture, the need to prove ourselves. You feel that? I feel that. I feel it right now. We feel like we need to prove ourselves. We are out there every day proving our worth. In, in, the movie, the Chariots, in the movie Chariots of Fire, there's one of the main characters as a brilliant sprinter, probably the best in the world. 
But it turns out that he doesn't really like running. If you know that movie, he doesn't really like running. He, he says, I'm something of an addict when it comes to running. And it comes to the Olympics and his event, the 100-meter dash is coming up. And he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? We could all say that. We're not looking down corridors of a track, but we are looking down corridors of parenting or career or even a life in ministry. And that is exhausting. Because even if we win, that's not enough. We've got to win again and then again and then again. And it kills us and it is killing us. And then we learn about grace. We learn about the complete reversal of his spiritual economy. Not only do we not have to prove ourselves, we can't do it. It's never going to work. Our greatest life is to live inside the record of Jesus. I don't know if you saw the two swimmers in the Olympics. Actually, the two divers, excuse me. They had won the silver medal, I think. And they were being interviewed after. And you expect the same old thing. I think, Mom, thank God. I'm the greatest. These guys didn't say that. They, 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 they looked up at the, at the platform and they said, you know what? We were really nervous this week. We were terrified and we were not happy. But, but we know that our identity is found in Jesus Christ, that it is by his grace that we do anything. And so it didn't matter if we won or lost to millions of people the preaching of the gospel to take for free what we did not deserve, to rest in everything he has provided to us, the record of Jesus. No anxiety, no fear, no worry, no stress. Rest. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Is this the song that you sing as you rise? Is it the song you sang before a big meeting? Grace must make us rest. And last, grace must motivate us. Grace must motivate us. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. You hear that? I live by grace, and it ain't in vain. This is not in vain. Paul is heading off a challenge at the pass. He's saying that if everything is by grace, if every, then the challenge will go, well, then you don't need to do anything. If it's really by grace, then you can sit back and eat chicken wings and watch Murder, She Wrote. That's what I'm watching right now. I love Murder, She Wrote. You don't have to do anything. And Paul says, that is impossible. If you understand grace, if you understand the sheer gift of grace for you, there would be no limit to your service for him. Tim Keller tells a story about a woman who had been coming to his church, and she had never heard of this notion of free grace before. She'd always believed that you had to be good enough to get in to heaven for God to accept you. And this new idea, though, she came up to him and she said, listen, if we are really saved by sheer grace, that is terrifying. And he said, terrifying? Well, why? Listen to what she said. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by grace, 
there is nothing he cannot ask of me. Our motivation in this life is usually fear, fear of punishment, fear of failure. But when we believe grace and we believe that God has loved us in Jesus, that he has given us his riches through Jesus, that there was no limit of God's love for you, then we can step out with courage and passion, knowing that our joy is met as we serve him. We live in his grace. So what does this look like? What does it look like? What are the details of living your life out in grace? We don't have time for that. We can't talk about that. So I would say stay tuned. Keep coming. All of grace for all of life is the vision of this church for good reason. We are learning together what it means to understand that we live by grace. We are learning what it means to walk in his ways. Do as he requested for our joy. But I am so excited to walk down that journey another year with you. Would you pray for that, for yourself and for this church? Would you pray that for this community and for this world? And begin to wonder, to imagine what could happen if we truly live by grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. God, we even pray by grace. We pray knowing that you are going to answer us, that you are going to reach out to us, that you are, are going to change us. God, all I want to do now is say, I'm, say thank you to say, I am grateful. We are grateful for all that you have done. We are grateful that you sent Jesus Christ to live the life that we were supposed to live and then die the death that we were supposed to die. We are grateful that you gave up his life for ours, though we did not deserve it. We are grateful that you love us. But now may it motivate us. May it motivate us in all the right ways that we would reflect your goodness, that we would reflect your mercy, that we would be be a people who distribute grace like a waterfall, that it would come pouring through us out to each other, out to our families, to our workplaces, and to the world. But you must do it. But by the grace of God, that you have given us, we are what we are, and we will do what you have required us to do. And so do what we ask. Do what we ask. By your grace, in the name of Jesus, amen.